0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And look, we tried hard to get a political commentator, but they're all too busy for some reason. Something's going on, apparently. So here's what I think about what's going on. They're fighting over opposition. Clearly, investors now need to get their heads around a Labour government, possibly even one that has control of both houses. Obviously, I don't know when that'll be, but it seems to be inevitable. And that means an end to cash refunds for franking credits, negative gearing confined to new dwellings only, not existing ones, and a 45% carbon emissions reduction target, so probably some kind of emissions intensity scheme, possibly even a trading scheme. Now, none of that's disastrous, although, as you know, I've been against the change to the franking credit regime, but uh, we might even get some stable politics for a while, although we thought that went with Malcolm Turnbull, and how wrong could we be? So why has this happened? Well, I'll expand on my view about that in the overview on Saturday, but here's a taste. The conservative side of politics in Australia has come adrift from business, and that's happened largely because of climate change replacing industrial relations as the core issue. The Liberal Party has always been the political wing of employers, just as the ALP has been the political wing of the unions. But that's broken down because the union movement has basically collapsed. And the trouble with climate change as the replacement for industrial relations is that the business community and the conservative politicians don't agree. Businesses see it as a practical issue, a matter of insurance and community engagement, and are basically entirely on board with trying to get carbon emissions down. Conservative politicians on the other hand see it as ideology and creating a distinction from the other side. Anyway, more on that on Saturday. For a check on the markets this week and their reaction to what's going on in Canberra, I talked to Kyle Rotter, market analyst at IG Australia, and uh, we have pinned down Beth Ann Bovino, who's the chief economist for the US for Standard & Poor's, and uh, she's visiting at the moment in Australia, and she tells me how the US economy is going and what might happen if Donald Trump is impeached as president, because we're not the only ones with a bit of political turmoil going on. And for a look at the government's anti-encryption legislation, which you probably didn't know about, but there it is, I talked to Ben Grubb, freelance writer and former Fairfax technology editor. Now to bring us up to date with the impact on the markets of all this turmoil in Canberra, here's Kyle Rodder, market analyst at IG Markets. Well, Kyle, what's the uh, response in the market to the political turmoil? I imagine from your client's point of view, who they like to trade with volatility, they're seeing a bit of a silver lining, are they? Yeah, potentially. I mean, we're seeing uh, plenty
1: of activity from a speculative point of view. Um, I mean, volatility um, on implied measures. Um, hasn't hasn't shown up in uh, or in an extreme way um, in in our pricing, but what it has done is move markets around enough in in, in a different direction. Um, you know the Australian dollar, but um, the, the ASX as well uh, to be able to capitalise on that. Um, more broadly speaking, I suppose in terms of what's going on in the market, I think I think surprisingly um, we're seeing much gra- a much greater reaction uh, to this narrative coming out of Canberra now uh, than we might have expected otherwise. And um, on my personal view on that. It's, uh, it really is related to, to, to the fact now that um, the, the, the leadership um, kerfuffle that's, that's going on now between uh, Dutton, uh, Turnbull and the, and the Liberal Party effectively hands government um, in, the, in the eyes of many investors to, to the Labor opposition come come the, uh, the next election. Um, so given some of their anti-bank rhetoric, um, given the, their views on certain elements of uh, the way we tax property, negative gearing and everything like that, um, as well as uh, the issues around franking credits and whatnot, I think there's at least a belief, uh, no matter um, how true this happens to be, that uh, perhaps uh, a, labor, a Labor government's imminent um, and that's not good for, for the financial sector, the real estate sector. So those are the two two sectors we've seen um, come off over the last three days since history has emerged, um, continues to do so uh, today. Um, and uh, I think it best shows up in you know, the, the prices of CBA and A&P who have been caught you know, in the middle of, um, of this sort of politicised um, situation in terms of the Royal Commission and, and uh, the financial yeah. sector They've come out the most. So I think that's what's really moving markets and um, yeah,
0: surprisingly we're seeing it manifest quite a lot. Do you think that... Um uh, uh, do you think that the the franking credit change that the the Labor Party is proposing—that is to say, to remove mm-hmm. uh, the ability for uh, low taxpayers to get cash back—is um, mm-hmm. going to have, going to be very negative for the market?
1: No, not really. Um, I think it certainly is from um, uh, obviously mum and dad's point of view a, a very big issue on something that's uh, not going to be particularly popular um, for for a very large segment of society. Um, who will be uh, affected by this? But I think the actual um, uh, the actual flows money that that, that actually uh, uh, that is that it amounts to from those uh, profile of investors is uh, relatively negligible. Um, I think really the the, the Thing here with what's going on is is more the uh, the uncertainty that's that's around this now um, and uh, the impact it has on sentiment and the confidence uh, to invest in those conditions. So you'd expect this um, this sort of thing to, to run its course eventually once the the dust settles. Uh, but at this point in time, I think the fact that we have to ask these questions at all um, and wonder about their implications it means those risks aren't priced in. Um, so we've, we've seen a lot of selling out as a result. So in terms of the actual policy, um, the, the, the tangibles and the, the actual, um, you know, nuts and bolts of things, I don't think it'll derail the market um, a great deal, uh, but it's enough at this point in time to bring in that uncertainty to, uh, to not confidence, and I think that's what we're seeing playing out at this point in time
0: as well. Another thing is that we're in the thick of the uh, reporting season now, of course, lots of profits coming in. What's mm. your overall impression of the reporting season and its impact on the market?
1: Uh, I think generally speaking it's been quite strong Um, and I think if the fundamentals weren't as strong as they were uh, within uh, the uh, the Aussie share market at the moment, we wouldn't see uh, situations like we did last week where we are, were able to clock, you know, ten and a half year highs, albeit on a, on an intraday basis. Um, you know, we got up to that sort of sixty three sixty mark. Um, so that says to me the fact that we've got trade wars going on overseas, we've got all sorts of geopolitical risks, um, as well as now political risks too, which have shown up um, in in markets over the last couple of days. The fact that we can still clock those, and we, we've seen some solid results coming out um, from from some of you know. Market going, you know, CSL is a great example, really underpinning um, the the market strength in, a, in an area of of a market that uh, looks like a real growth driver. Um, says to me that the that the earnings season has. Uh, been solid. I think there's been probably a few misses there, um, and a few concerns, particularly when we keep seeing these material um, uh, sectors, uh, stocks, and companies report that they are uh, pointing to clouds on the horizon. But despite that, I think the uh, the overall outcome and the overall theme at this point in time has been um, a good one. Um, and as we move through, we'll, we'll continue to digest news to see, um, you know, how we can extrapolate that information to to to, to sort of
0: you know whether um, or decide whether we can um, expect good times ahead as well. So, most of the guidance from the, the reporting companies has been pretty positive, has it? Generally speaking, I mean, the interesting one for me is the miners, um, again, which
1: they've um they've referred to obviously some of these these headwinds caused by just a one a cyclical slowdown um, in uh, in commodity prices, but also the risk of of trade wars, and that'll how that all affect their, um, their, their, their revenues. Um the other interesting one for me too was was the um comments that came out of Ansel, um during the week um just about how their business would be affected by potential trade wars and and how tangible that would be. Um so I think the guidance is pretty strong, and I think it's it's a bit of a theme that's come out across the board is that, you <laughs> You know uh, the, the fundamental stripping back um, the, the the risks associated with um, you know again trade wars or political eruptions, tariffs, all these sorts of things, and, and that obviously kicked off um, further this week and um, and should become um, come back in the headlines too um, with um, with with the next round of tariffs being implemented today. Effectively, um, when you strip back those things, I think I think um, business is fairly confident with with where the, with where they're positioned, um, but it's just these risks that could potentially derail that and they keep coming coming Up that um, that uh, corporates are alluding to. So, yeah, I think um, I think the, the comments are a bit fairly strong, but there's a, a very strong caveat as well, and almost a, a very pointed um, pointed remarks about um, some of the interferences that are coming from largely from a, a geopolitical basis. So, I think um, that's my assessment on that one.
0: And now here's Beth Ann Bovino, who's the chief economist for America of S&P Global. Beth Ann, you've got a, a probability of a recession in the U.S. Uh, over the next 12 months of 10 to 15 percent, quite low. What would have to change for that to rise to above 50 percent? Do you think?
2: Yeah, it would take a. It, right now, the momentum is rather strong in the United States. Uh, strong fundamentals for the economy. It's. And it's also a really large boat, so it's pretty, much, pretty hard to uh, change its course at this point. I would say uh, we'd need several shocks, not just the trade war. And the trade war on its own, uh, um, the direct effects is rather small. In fact, right now, I would say it's more of a nuisance than, um, than an, ex- an extreme event for the U.S. The worry, of course, is that the trade war could, um, the direct effects could go into secondary effects where businesses start to, uh, you know, confidence starts to collapse. Businesses shut their pocketbooks. You could see, you could see then the supply chain start to weaken and that would have a, a much more severe impact on the U.S. economy. But even that on its own would not be enough. So, I think what we'd really need to see is let's see what happens with housing. We have a we, uh, that on its own still not enough, um, but we do have a uh, we do have higher prices um and the question of course, if we start to see households start to to worry and equity markets get weak as well, um that could certainly cause the, um, households to uh to uh slow down on spending, which would be na- another hit to uh growth going forward.
0: One thing you say that, uh, that offsets the effect of the trade war is the uh, fiscal policy in the US uh, and the um, the Fed Reserve uh, minutes came out this morning and uh, said much the same thing, that it's, uh, fiscal policy is very supportive of economic growth. So um, do you think that would need to change as well? I mean, uh, it, it looked, do you, it, just looking ahead and the detail of what uh, the Trump administration is doing, Uh, Will that continue to support economic growth in the US for a while yet?
2: Well um, you know when the Trump administration came into power we had said that uh, President Trump inherited a rather healthy economy um, and that was what we have seen and of course this fiscal stimulus just adds to it another reason why it's hard to see it's hard to see a, a recession out 12 months. however um, we do have to say you know right now it's uh, good things don't last forever and of course the worry we would have is going out after um, going out past 12 months. what happens in 2019? or 2020, uh, when you start to see that fiscal stimulus start to uh, filter out of the system, Uh, we do see growth slowing in 2020 back to uh, the potential growth rate of under 2%. And that, um, that certainly gives a less cushion um, if we do have to see several shocks. And at that same time, we also have the Fed raising rates. We have two rate hikes this year, three the next year. Would they have to move faster? One of the things about that fiscal stimulus that the Trump administration has touted is that this was going to create uh, productivity-generating growth for the US, and that we were going to see 3 or 4% going out, well, it seemed like forever. Uh, right now, uh, we at S&P Global are a bit skeptical of that. And the worry, of course, is could we see even more inflation instead, where the Fed is going to have to raise rates even faster than what what markets expect, and that's a worry for two thousand nineteen and twenty.
0: What, what about the political situation? I know you're uh, the, an economic commentator and an economist, not not a political commentator. But um, yeah, you know, things seem to be mounting. What what impact uh, would an impeachment of Donald Trump have on the economy?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, we of course we can't speculate on on what happens. In fact, the the, the political pollsters get it wrong too. So uh, it's really hard to speculate on what could happen with politics um, in the United States. However, um, I think what we're focusing on is what happens with the midterms, and that could certainly that could have an impact on the economy. Let's say right now, the 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 point the question is is it's will the Democrats take the House? of representatives it seems likely although again it's really hard to tell from uh, where we are right now it seems that the ha- um the 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 republicans will keep the senate but what if that doesn't happen what if we do see a majority democrats taking over the house and senate that's when you start to see the po- the the politics come become much more more of um, much more of an issue you talked about impeachment now can't really say what will happen there but indeed if in, if the if democrats take the house and the senate um that that uh that that question of impeachment, which is a political thing, not a legal thing, could become more of a more of a, more prevalent going into uh, 2019 and 2020. But you know, I would say probably more of um, more of the question for the economy is that if we see the Democrats take a House, then we have an even more gridlocked. Uh, Congress, that means nothing really gets through. The question of another tax package that was talked about by the administration, very, very unlikely. Infrastructure package seems unlikely as well. So we could see economic slowdown from that very fact.
0: Just focusing now briefly on the uh, on the trade war itself, um, you talk about in one of your uh, pieces, you talk about the potential or how bad could it be? How bad could a full-blown trade war get? And obviously it could go to all of the goods and services uh, all of the goods between US and China carrying tariffs. That's 130 billion of American exports to China and 506 billion of Chinese exports to the US. Um, how, do you, just looking at it, do you think that's even remotely possible? And if so, what would happen then?
2: If we saw um, if we saw um, tariffs put on all um, on all on all the goods that are traded, um, well, yep. first thing uh, nothing is no, nothing is impossible these days. Uh, you know, if you if you want to take a bet, uh, good luck. <laughs> it's, it's it's certainly risky at this at, at this point in time. But what's interesting is that um, even if we um, had a significant amount of tariffs on both um, on what uh, on U.S. and China on China uh, goods. Um, for the United States, it's rather small. We're such a big economy, nineteen trillion or I don't, maybe even bigger than that at this point in time. And we are largely domestically driven, so we saw the direct effects as rather small. um even if we did, it ramp it up to a significant amount of tariffs on across the board. Uh, maybe it would shave. we had it we had it around fifty or basis points, but it could be even higher that than that, but let's say it's let's say it's three quarters quarters of a percentage point. If we have growth in two thousand and nineteen at two and a half percent as we expect, yeah, that brings it down, but it's still nowhere near recession. On China side, we're starting to see some weakness, but China has a lot of China has a little bit more um leeway in terms of well, if they see a, if they see weakness on on growth, they could actually kind of change the leverage a little bit more to get to to to, pur- to purport. To, for policy to support growth, giving a little bit more mitigation or a little bit more um, uh, um, a little bit less of a hit to uh, the trade war as well. But when we talk about trade war, keep in mind that the big issue here was not trade on goods, it's trade on services. And that really hasn't been addressed, particularly intellectual property, having uh, China markets more open to businesses, both the US and, other, and others. And that still really hasn't been addressed. That's the real issue.
0: joined now by Ben Grubb, who's the former technology editor of Fairfax and now freelancer. Well, Ben, who knows what's going on with politics and, uh, and legislation, but there was a bill introduced uh, to do with encryption, um, which was interesting. To, uh, what, what was the government trying to achieve? What is the government trying to achieve?
3: Well, for a long time now, law enforcement agencies and spy agencies have been struggling with the rise of uh, encryption. And encryption basically makes it impossible for someone in the middle of a communication to intercept it and decipher the contents of that communication. And so people might be familiar with uh, apps like, say, Wicca or um, Signal or, uh, you know, the various other apps that exist that even our Prime Minister, who knows who our Prime Minister is anymore, who is the Prime Minister, but uh, they use uh, these uh, apps to communicate securely. Um, people, even law enforcement agencies, use these apps because they know that it, that they are secure, um, and we can use it in email and so forth. And what the government um, has been, you know, lending an ear to the agencies on is how do we, you know, quote unquote, fix this problem? How do we gain access to those encrypted communications, but not undermine encryption um, in its in all its glory? And so they've crafted this legislation um, that requires. Uh, technology companies to uh, basically provide a – the word used to be backdoor, but now they're like, oh, we're not introducing a backdoor, we're introducing a side door. So uh, in in this instance, they want to um, require technology companies to assist them in removing security protections. So they wouldn't necessarily hand over the master key for access to those communications, but they would get the technology company to – open it up somehow themselves by removing security protections and then um, gaining access to the communications and then handing that over the, to um, the, the agencies. Now, the technology companies still say that this is undermining encryption and that that would be bad for society as a whole. It wouldn't be for the greater good, they say. And that is because you are still doing something to the technology that thwarts the encryption. And... Um they also say that this legislation that has been put out uh, for consultation over the next few weeks, um, that it doesn't have enough judicial oversight, so it wouldn't require a judge on every occasion. And um, there's a various there's lots of fines that are associated with it if you don't uh, cooperate with uh, a law enforcement agency, but it's going to be quite interesting to watch how this unfolds because, in the UK, I believe they've passed similar legislation, In other Western countries they've done uh, the same thing. And yeah, all technology companies pretty much are kind of coming together and saying, you know, we we reject this. This is well, Ben.
0: Ha- um, and if you ben, are, how does it uh, how does it fit with the argument about privacy and the um the European um, uh, General Data Protection Regulations?
3: Yeah, Alan, it's quite quite interesting. So that with the GDPR um, in in the UK, that is all about Um, I guess, uh, you know, ensuring that people do have um, privacy, they do have rights. Um, You know, our Privacy Act has been around for a few years now and it is not as good as, uh, you know, in the eyes of privacy advocates, that is, not as good as as Europe's has been. And that GDPR basically enshrines this kind of right to privacy, you know, right to access your data, right to delete your data. Um, There are a lot of rights. Uh, And that all stems historically from when, um, you know, I think this is the reason why Europeans are much more concerned about their privacy is because back in the day when um, Hitler was killing a bunch of people, he used the census data to figure out what people had reported their religions as to, in order to then, you know, discriminate against them. And they've always been worried about discrimination. So it does it tie into that GDPR thing. Well, it goes against GDPR. That definitely for sure um, you know it, it doesn't necessarily respect uh, individuals right to privacy but you do have to you do have to weigh that balance um, and and you know i think that that's uh why they're having the consultation now uh, is do we believe as a society that it is okay to break encryption uh, in a certain way they would argue that the government would argue that it's not breaking encryption but it, it is certainly undermining it I mean, if you're going to gain access to something that is meant to be secure, and then somehow by a side door, a back door, whatever door uh, you gain access to the communications at the end of the day, that that does mean you, you can't put it any other way. You are undermining encryption. You are well. There's a
0: fundamental. There's a fundamental. There's a fundamental conflict, isn't there, between the right to privacy and the need or the you know the stated need of governments to find out what you're doing. So you can't have both. Exactly.
3: You can't, you cannot actually have both. It is a black and white thing uh, in this situation, and uh, we, as a society, and maybe the government will decide for us, as they usually do. Uh, we'll have to decide whether we think um, that you know that uh, you know things like terrorism um, and even petty crimes, to be honest. So they, they they were selling this as a you know we're protecting uh, society from pedophiles, we're protecting society from terrorism. But if you look at the legislation, it talks about um, you know if if you're doing something that is um, you know contrary to protecting the public revenue, then they want the technology companies to uh, be able to access um, you know your encrypted communication. So I mean, if you're committing tax fraud. It's not just what the headlines are what they're trying to sell this as and this is the case with many government policies these days you know even with my health record there was an instance where this is the government's digital health record where um, you know law enforcement agencies would have been able to have accessed your uh, health record to protect the public revenue and I feel like you know perhaps many Australians would not feel that that is getting the balance right and we did see a change of Um, Some of the proposed change by the government of some of that legislation, not necessarily on protecting the public revenue, but what they're going to do now is require a warrant um, in order to access people's health records. Um, And in this instance, with the accessing of the encrypted comms, um, you know, there's probably going to be a harder push by the tech companies to require a warrant. And that might be, you know, go some way to ease people's concerns, but it's definitely not going to go all the way because it doesn't resolve that that initial, you know, quandary that we're facing now is can you have both? No, you cannot. You cannot have privacy and then undermine encryption at the same time.
0: And this week's song, well, we tried to think about what could be appropriate for what's happening in Canberra and, well, what else but Isn't It Ironic by Alanis Morissette. No. Oh, That's it from me, enjoy your weekend.